First Corinthians chapter number 15. Look with me in verse number 12. The Bible says, Now if Christ be preached that He rose from the dead, how say some among you that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there be no resurrection of the dead, then is Christ not risen. And if Christ be not risen, then is our preaching vain, and your faith is also vain. Yea, and we are found false witnesses of God because we have testified of God that He raised up Christ, whom He raised not up, if so be that the dead rise not. For if the dead rise not, then is not Christ raised. And if Christ be not raised, your faith is vain, ye are yet in your sins. Then they also which are fallen asleep in Christ are perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ... We are of all men most miserable. I want you to notice verse 20. I like this. But now. (laughs) But now. You see, there's a lot of ifs in this passage we just read. If Christ be not raised, if the dead rise not, if in this life only. But Paul doesn't leave it there. He says, but now is Christ risen from the dead and become the first fruits of them that slept. Would you pray with me this morning? Heavenly Father, you knew who would and wouldn't be here this morning. And I do not know the heart of any human being in this building, Lord, but you do. You know what's needed, Lord. God, my only hope and prayer can be that you would give me the power and unction to preach and that you'd use your word through the power of the Holy Spirit to convict hearts and to draw us closer to you. If there's one amongst us that's lost this morning, Lord, I wouldn't presume to guess, but God, you know, you don't have to guess. You know the heart. I pray they'd be convicted, Lord, not just of the things that they've done, but of who they are. They'd be shown their need of Calvary and of the saving grace of Jesus Christ. If there's one amongst us, Lord, that needs to be uh, founded in these truths, I pray they would find the foundation they need. God, if there's one amongst us that's backslidden far away from you, Lord, My prayer is not that you'd smite them, but that you'd draw them with loving kindness. God, if there's one amongst us that's downcast and downtrodden and discouraged and they need help and they need to be uplifted, God, give us the wisdom to not beat them over the head, Lord, but help us in meekness, Lord, and in humility to do our best to give them the truth of the Word of God that they might be restored and drawn closer to you. God, you're going to have to accomplish these things for the arm of flesh fails us to do so. And Lord, I just pray that you'd help us not to rely even in the least upon ourselves, but to give way completely and utterly to the liberty of the Holy Spirit that he may do a work in our lives. Father, we love you this morning, and we thank you for it. In Christ's name we pray all these things. Amen. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, we have what some might call the resurrection chapter. And in fact, you'll find that the central theme of 1 Corinthians 15 is the truth not only of the resurrection of the saint, but of the resurrection of the Savior. Now, we might tend to believe today that this is a doctrine that is safely contented in the bosoms and hearts of believers. But I'd have you to know that there are some today in this world that would urge us to do away with the belief in the resurrection, the bodily, physical resurrection of our Lord. You see, this is a pretty contentious doctrine. 
I'd like to read for you a quote. Some of you know who Dr. R.L. Moyer is. Others of you may not. He was an old-time man of God. And he said this about the resurrection. He said, He who takes away the resurrection takes away the gospel and leaves us no gospel or at best only a false gospel. He who takes away the resurrection takes away the Bible and leaves us with a mere book. He who takes away the resurrection mantles our future with Egyptian darkness. To take away the resurrection is to leave man with no preeminence above the beast. To have blotted out Paul's hope in the resurrection would have blotted out his hope in Christ. He makes our salvation to rest on the resurrection. The man, therefore, now listen carefully, I believe this this morning. The man, therefore, who does not believe in the resurrection is not a Christian. Other doctrines are important. This is one of the essentials. You know, at some point in Christianity, we have divorced the necessity of the resurrection away from the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And there is an emphasis, and I would not presume to say an overemphasis, because I do not believe you can overemphasize Calvary. But I do believe that there is an unbalanced emphasis on the cross rather than the empty tomb. Can I tell you today, neighbor, that if you don't believe in the physical, bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ, that the Bible teaches that you don't know God, you don't know God's Son, you've never had your sins washed, and you're going to die and go to hell. Is that plain enough this morning? You say, preacher, that's mean. You're beating us over the head. No, I love you enough to tell you the truth about this. This is not something we can compromise on. This is not something that we can differ in opinion. If you reject the resurrection, you reject the redemption of Jesus Christ. It is truthfully one of the most vital doctrines in all of the Word of God. And so it should be no surprise to us that the devil has oft attacked it. It is a hopeless preaching that puts Christ on the cross, but never brings Him out of the tomb. It was said before of Dr. Leonard Tucker, a man that had great associations with Mr. Moody, D.L. Moody, that D.L. Moody was having tent meetings in Chicago. And uh, he had uh, various tents all over the city, and he was putting uh, preachers in the different cities preaching the gospel. And one night, Dr. Tucker preached on the cross of Christ. And he told them at the end of the invitation, he said, Now, I've presented to you Christ on the cross tonight, and tomorrow night I'm going to tell you what will happen. Well, that sounds good. That sounds like good preaching, don't it? Mr. Moody had been in it long enough to know there was a problem with it. And the next day at the workers' meeting, Mr. Moody saw Dr. Tucker coming. He said, You're Tucker, aren't you? He said, Yes, sir, Mr. Moody, I am. He said, You're intent such and such, aren't you? He said, Yes, sir, I am. He said, Don't go back. I don't need your kind of preaching. He said... Well, Mr. Moody, I preached Christ and Him crucified. Yeah, and you left Him dead and you never brought Him out of the tomb. A resurrectionless gospel cannot save anyone. For you see, without the resurrection, the cross is just the tragic end to a beautiful life. Just a martyr's sacrifice and nothing more. But neighbor, I'm here to tell you today that it didn't end at the cross. It didn't end when He was took off the cross. It didn't end when He was put in the tomb. But glory to God, He came up the third day and He rose in power and in glory. And He's alive today for you and for me. It's important to understand the power and the significance of Christ's resurrection. I want to say just a quick word. Look in verse 12. The Bible says, Now if Christ be preached that He rose from the dead. Now that's true. That's what the Gospels present to us. But it says, If Christ be preached that He rose from the dead, how say some among you that there is no resurrection of the dead? I want to say a word very quickly about the enmity 
of the resurrection. This is an oft-attack doctrine. And you'll find that the reason Paul wrote to the church at Corinth about the resurrection is because there were some at the church at Corinth that didn't believe the resurrection. That were trying to lead others astray. The Bible says, who have erred concerning uh, the truth, saying that the resurrection is already past. That's what he wrote to Timothy about another group of believers. And evidently at Corinth, this truth was just the same. You see, there were some that said the resurrection's not going to happen. And it's always been thus. We find in Matthew 22, and you don't have to turn there, we're for time's sake not going to read it, but I encourage you to read it later. You'll find that there was a group of religious folk. Now, you've got to watch out for them religious folks. Somebody say amen right there. Religion don't help a man a bit. Can I tell you that this morning? You can have all the religion in the world and it can send you straight to hell. Listen to me, uh, religion sends more people to hell than sex, drugs, and rock and roll all combined. It's a damnable thing of the devil. The only time religion is spoken of in a good connotation in the Word of God is the book of James, and it's called pure religion and undefiled. But every other time that religion is spoke of in the Word of God is a damnable device of the devil uh, designed to send people to a devil's hell. And so there was a religious crowd. They were called the Sadducees. I'm a Christian school kid. I always grew up in Christian school. And, you know, they teach you goofy things in Christian school. No offense, amen, to our teachers. But, uh, you know, they always taught me in church and in Christian school that the way you could remember what the Sadducees were, you see, they didn't believe in the resurrection. They'd always say, so they were sad, you see. Isn't that silly? But I'll say this, I remember it after all these years, amen. <laughs> I remember it. The Sadducees would have been right alongside the Pharisees in basically every point of doctrine except one, that they denied the physical bodily resurrection of believers one day, and consequently they denied the physical bodily resurrection of the Messiah. And so even in Jerusalem at that time, even amongst the religious crowd, there were some that said, there's no resurrection of the dead. Can I tell you that amongst the religious crowd today, there's plenty that say there's no resurrection of the dead. They say when you die, you die and you're dead and that's it. You go and you meet God and all your good works and all your bad works are put on a big scale and whatever outweighs the other one determines where your floating spirit spends the rest of eternity. Can I tell you that doesn't have a lick of Bible on it anywhere? The Bible teaches that we're going to be raised up the same way that Christ was raised up and by the same power, too. Uh, you know what the Bible says? I know we sing the song, I'll Have a New Body. And listen, I don't, I'm not one of these that gripes with people over uh, song lyrics. Sometimes there's uh, undoctrinal things, sometimes there's not. I think if we have a little grace and common sense, we can enjoy what's good in the songs and, uh, and do away with what's bad. But we always sing, you know, I'll have a new body, I'll have a new life. Do you know you'll not have a new body, you'll have a change body. The Bible says this corruptible shall put on incorruption. That's what Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 50. This corruptible. You say, so I'm going to look like my ugly old self. I'm, I hate to break it to you, church, but the truth of the matter is there's always been some that denied in religious circles the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Can I say there's always also been some in the philosophical and in the secular circles. Again, you don't have to turn there, but I encourage you at some point to read Acts chapter 17, and you'll find out about these fellows. They call them the Epicureans and the Stoics. Now you say, what were the Epicureans and the Stoics? They were philosophers of a degree. They followed philosophers, and they had a very humanistic attitude about the things of life. They believe what you saw was what you saw, and what you got was what you got. 
But the Bible says when Paul came and began to preach to them the truth of the cross of Christ in an empty tomb and began to present to them the truth of the Word of God concerning this matter, listen to what the Bible says they said. They said, He seemeth, speaking of Paul, He seemeth to be a setter forth of strange gods because he preached unto them Jesus. Now notice this, and the resurrection. Can I tell you that not only the religious world has a problem with the resurrection, but the secular world has a problem with the resurrection. Now, we could sit here and argue all day about Easter and uh, colorful eggs and bunny rabbits all you want. I'm not interested in doing that this morning. But let me just say this. We're raising a generation of young people that believe that Easter is just another gift-giving time of celebration and festivity and have forgotten that it is a celebration of the Son of God that rose from the tomb. And we're allowing the world to do it to us. We're allowing the world to do it to us. You say, preacher, do you care if young people go and, and find little eggs full of candy? No, I don't mind as long as they bring me some. Amen? I don't care. I really don't. And all the festivities you want to have, that don't bother me. But listen, you ought to be teaching your kids what the real meaning of it is. The real meaning of it is. The world's always had a problem with the resurrection. But let me say, not only the Sadducees at Jerusalem had a problem with it, and the Epicureans and Stoics at Athens had a problem with it, but can I say to you that textual critics, both ancient and modern, have always had a problem with the resurrection. You say, preacher, what is a textual critic? A textual critic is a man that believes God didn't say what he means and mean what he says. You see, I, I'm, I'm thankful we have the Word of God. I'm th- and I, and I, can, I, can I make a few enemies? I'm thankful it's that 1611 King James Bible too. Amen. But there's always been a group that sought to undermine these matters. And I'm sure there have been times in human history when a textual critic just genuinely wanted to understand some original languages. But let me tell you something. Uh, the textual critics, there's always been an overwhelming attitude and spirit of the destruction of the Word of God in the work that they do, always. The reason that some of you have an NIV Bible or an NKJV or whatever, what may have you, is because of uh, two men by the name of Westcott and Hort. I'm not here to give you a history lesson today, but let me just give you just a snippet of it. Westcott and Hort were two men that never professed to know Jesus Christ as their Savior. They had no belief in the resurrection. They idolized Mary and worshipped Mary as a god. They believed in evolution. They had not even a stitch of Christianity on their life, but they were theologians. And so Westcott and Hort began while they were at Cambridge University in the 1850s to develop what they uh, call the Westcott and Hort Greek text. By the way, it was during this time that Westcott and Hort were also dabbling in necromancy and praying to the dead and departed spirits and worshiping devils. But that's neither here nor there. You say, preacher, you're crazy. Study your history and you'll find it to be true. Westcott and Hort, uh, by the time the late 1870s came around, they were pretty prominent figures. They had outgrown the college boyish uh, good looks and, and activities, and now they were respected men in England. And they decided it was time for a new translation of the Word of God. So Westcott and Hort concocted to themselves a translation committee. And by the way, that translation committee thought, thought, thought that what they were doing was coming in and gently changing tenses and things of that nature. Now, not that I'd approve of that church, but I'm saying they didn't even understand what they was getting into. 
They get in there and Mr. Westcott and Mr. Hort uh, decided it would be wise to uh, bring them all into a vow of silence. And every one of the men on that committee vowed their silence upon what took place in that room until a later point in time. And from that committee came the 1882 revised version of the quote-unquote Word of God. From that came the American revised standard version. From that came the New American Standard Bible, and then later the New American Standard Version. From that came the NRSV, the New Revised Standard Version. You say, preacher, the Bible I use doesn't take after those people. No, the Bible, if you use a false perversion of the Bible, probably is taken from the Nestle Allen Greek text. Am I boring anyone this morning? I hope I'm not. You need to know it whether you're bored or not, amen? The Nestle Allen Greek text. The Nestle Allen Greek text differs in less than 300 ways from the Westcott and Hort Greek text. By the way, that's the equivalent of the book of 3 John, the smallest book in the New Testament. It's practically the identical text. And most of the translations of the Bible that you might use today, such as the Holman Christian Standard, the New International Version, the New King James, and on and on and on we could go, have been taken and influenced from these false perverted texts. Can I tell you one of the greatest attacks upon the Word of God that was perpetrated in those texts? I don't know whether you've got an NIV Bible here today. Maybe you do. I don't know. But if you do, you can look in Mark chapter number 16. And in Mark chapter number 16, you're going to find one of three things concerning the last 12 verses of the book of Mark from verse 9 onward. You're either going to find they are absolutely missing. Now, early translations and false perversions of the Bible had them completely gone. But you know, that upset church people because they just Remember this little verse in the book of Revelation that said you ought not take any away or add any in. And so they put those last 12 verses back into the end of the book of Mark. But for a while, what they did was they took and they put a line above those verses and a marginal note that says some of the oldest manuscripts do not contain this 12 verses. Now, finally, most of them today simply have a footnote or a marginal note to that effect. Say, preacher, what are you what are you driving at? I'm trying to tell you this. The last twelve verses of the book of Mark present to us the physical, bodily resurrection of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. They present to us the truth of His resurrection. And there's always been an attack, an attack, an attack, an attack upon the resurrection of our Lord. You say, why do they attack the resurrection? Because without the resurrection, there's no salvation. You say, why do they attack the resurrection? Because without the resurrection, our God is just like their gods. You say, why do they attack the resurrection? Because it was the resurrection that became a coronation and at, at every single knee shall bow at the name of Jesus Christ as a result of the resurrection. Without the resurrection, you have no crown. Without the resurrection, there is no throne. Without the resurrection, the cross means nothing. Without the resurrection, Christianity is dead. Your faith is in vain. You are yet in your sins without the resurrection. So there's always been enmity against it. Certainly there wouldn't be enmity against the resurrection, but for the importance of the resurrection. That's what we have here for us in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I want to give you just three of these very quickly. Look at verse 13. The Bible says, But if there be no resurrection of the dead then is Christ not risen. And if Christ be not risen, then is our preaching vain, and your faith is also vain. Yea, and we are found false witnesses of God, because we have testified of God that He raised up Christ, whom He raised not up, 
if so be that the dead rise not. Let me say that the resurrection is important because without the resurrection, deception is implied. Let me tell you something. If the resurrection is not real, we might as well all go to the house. Amen? Listen, I ain't here to play church. And I'm not trying to be super spiritual. I'm just being honest with you. If the resurrection never took place, if it's not real, we might as well sleep in on Sundays. Go to the lake. Now, every other false religion in the world won't tell you that. But Bible Christianity will tell you that if in this life only we have hope, we are of all men most miserable. Let's not play church. If we don't believe it, if it ain't real, there's no sense in spending the time, the money. You ought not even own a pair of dress clothes if you don't believe in the resurrection. Amen? No sense in it. Because if the resurrection never took place, the Word of God is a liar. The Word of God explicitly details for us the physical, bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ and not only presents to us that He rose, but tells us how He rose and with what body He rose and with what body we're going to rise. The Bible is clear about it. Listen, if there's no resurrection, Paul's a liar. If there's no resurrection, Peter's a liar. If there's no resurrection, John's a liar. If there's no resurrection, Matthew's a liar. If there's no resurrection, every apostle is a liar. Because you know what they said? They said, I saw him. I saw him. I saw him arise. I saw him arise. I saw him arise. They all said, we've seen it. You know what Peter said? We've not followed cunningly devised fables. He said, we were eyewitnesses. Peter says, I'm not telling tales out of school. I'm not making this up. Peter says, I saw him when he rose again. I sat down on the seaside. I ate fish with him. I hugged his neck. I heard his words. This isn't a game, church. The resurrection is real today. It's real today. Deception is implied. All the preaching means nothing. Without the resurrection, we don't have anything to preach. Without the resurrection, we might as well throw it in and go to the house. Without the resurrection, you're a hypocrite and a cruel soul for trying to give hope to another person. Without the resurrection, listen to me, I am a, a deviant for trying to preach hope to a person's soul. Without the resurrection, it means nothing. But let me say, notice verse 16 through 18, the Bible says, For if the dead rise not, then is not Christ raised. And if Christ be not raised, your faith is vain, you are yet in your sins. Then they also which are fallen asleep in Christ are perished. Let me say that deception is implied, but destruction, destruction is imminent. If Christ never wrote, listen to me, the death of Christ on the cross, now don't mark me, listen carefully to what I say, the death of Christ on the cross without the empty tomb could not save a single person. Let me tell you a misnomer that we have, and I think we ought to start clarifying it in our soul winning and in our own teaching and our own preaching. What saves us is not a historical event that took place. Do you hear me now? I'll tell you where we're leading people astray. I'll tell you why we have false professions. I'll tell you why we have people that say they know Christ and their life never changes. Because we are leading them to believe that, that putting their faith in Christ means having faith in a historical event that took place to effectually redeem them and pardon them from their sin. Let me tell you what the Bible teaches. And you hath He quickened. You hear me? Not, and you hath His death quickened. And you hath He quickened. He's able. He is. Are you getting me this morning? Present tense. He is able to save to the uttermost. 
Salvation is not putting your faith in a historical event to have atoned for your transgressions, but it is putting your faith in a risen Savior to save and keep you by His power and His grace. That's what salvation is. And I'll tell you what we're missing then. We're, we're turning out, we're cranking out a crop of people that think because they academically acknowledge a historical event that they know the Lord. Until a person comes to know the risen Savior, they've never been saved. They can pray a prayer. Listen to me. They can pray a prayer. They can understand doctrine. They can even confess the truth of the gospel. But until they understand that Christ has arisen from the grave, that He's living, and that He must save them, when they put their faith in Him, that by His grace He saves them, they'll never come to know Christ. Never. And I'll tell you what's done that to us. It's not childlike faith. Childlike faith just takes it at face value. You tell a little child, I promise you, I promise you, a little child has an easier time with the resurrection than a grown adult. They just take it at face value. Oh, you say he arose? Then he arose. But an adult has to rationalize everything. An adult, God's, God's plan and God's Word has to fit into his logic and his philosophy before an adult will accept what the truth of the Word of God says. That's what sends people to hell. The Bible says you're yet in your sins. I want to give you a third thing. Look at verse 19. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. Let me say that if the resurrection never took place, that despair is inevitable. I'll tell you why we've got a lot of miserable Christians today. Because they live like Christ is still in the tomb. I don't know if you're aware of this, neighbor. And I listen, I'm not just trying to puff up emotion. I promise you. But I don't know if you're aware of this. But greater is He that is in you than he that is in the world. Thanks be to God which giveth us the victory. That's what the Bible teaches. There's not a lot you have to worry about when you know you have a risen Savior. And I know, I know our flesh is prone to worry. And I worry just like anybody else worries. Don't think this preacher is trying to climb up on a pedestal in the energy of his flesh. But I'm simply telling you that for you and for me, we ought to live like he's alive because he is alive and we ought to have something to rejoice about this morning. I like what Brother Kerry said. said he's alive. Let's sing like it. It ought to change the way we sing. It ought to change the way we act. It ought to change the things we say. It ought to change the things we pray. It ought to change the way that we lead our families and lead our homes and lead our spouses when we understand that Christ is not just a historical figure that rotted away in a grave, but He's a risen Savior that's alive and can help us and He indwells us by the power of the Holy Spirit. That ought to change us. And if it doesn't change us, it's because we don't really get it. We don't really get it. We say we've got it, but we don't really get it. Just like the truth of His soon coming. We can say we know it all we want, but if it don't change us, it don't mean a thing. It don't mean a thing. I want to give you three things very quickly about the impact of the resurrection. We've seen the enmity of the resurrection, and it's a hated doctrine. And we've seen the impact of the resurrection, and it is a heavy doctrine. But I want us to notice the impact, the importance, and then the impact of His resurrection because it's a hopeful doctrine. Look at what it says in uh, Ephesians chapter number 2. And I'm just going to give you these very quickly. I'm going to try not to dwell on them too long. I want to say because of the resurrection of Christ, those that have put their faith in Him are saved from hell. Now you say, preacher, that's elementary. 
I mean, that's building blocks. I know, I know it is. But you're never going to have a foundation without building blocks, amen? Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 and 5 says, But God... Now, it's just got through, and you, you can read it sometime in your own time. It's just got through talking about what scoundrels we were. We was wicked, we was ungodly, alienated from God. It says, But God, but God who is rich in mercy... For His great love wherewith He loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us. You know what that word quickened means? It means resurrected. It means given us life. It means we were dead, we were dead, we were dead. But God raised us up. It says, hath quickened us together with Christ. By grace ye are saved. The great hope of our nailing ourselves to the cross when we come as a sinner lost and undone, seeking Christ's grace, is that as we have been crucified with Him, we'll be raised up together with Him. He's a risen Savior. Historical fact doesn't save anyone. Listen, it. can I give you an example? Can I give you a quick example? Stick with me now. Let me give you a quick example. I can go down. I can go down to the bank and open an account and put $1,000 in there with your name on it, right? I can do that. But if I don't ever tell you, it don't do any good. If I don't ever take you there, it don't do you any good. If the teller won't let you have it, it don't do any good. You see, the historical fact doesn't change anything. The debt that's been paid doesn't change anything. Someone has to give you access to what's been paid. And let me tell you something. By the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we have access by faith through His blood. Access. Access. We can be saved. Listen, your family can be saved because Christ rose from the dead. Your friends can be saved because Christ. Them grandbabies can be saved. Them children can be saved because Christ rose from the dead. Because He rose from the dead, we're saved from hell. But also, in John chapter number 7, verse 39, I want to say we're not only saved from hell, but we're spiritually indwelt. The Bible says in John 7, 39, and Christ had been speaking. It was a feast day, and He was speaking there in uh, Jerusalem. And He said, Come unto Me, all ye uh, that thirst, and I will give you water. And listen to what it says. But this spake He of the Spirit, which they that believe on Him should receive, for the Holy Ghost was not yet given, because that Jesus was not yet glorified. I want to give you a little basic theology between the dispensations, between the covenant of law and the covenant of grace. In the old, listen, the Holy Spirit indwelling us is a direct result of us being born again of the Spirit of God into the family of God. The Old Testament believers did not have the Holy Spirit indwelling them. And in fact, if you read in the Old Testament, you'll find that the Old Testament believers, there were times when the Spirit was on them. And there were times when the Spirit was in front of them and behind them and under them and to the left and to the right. And the Spirit was all around them and all over them, but it was never in them. But you know what Christ said? Christ said that God will send a comforter to you. He said, and He shall be in you. In you. The sweet Holy Spirit that convicts us of sin, that comforts us, that makes us aware and, uh, and enlightens us to the truths of the Word of God is a direct result of the resurrection of our Lord and Savior. You know what the Bible says? He ascended on high, led captivity captive. The Bible says He gave gifts to all men. And you know what it does? It starts to name what those gifts are. Prophecy and teaching and all these various things. You know what those are? Those are gifts of the Spirit. The Bible says in the book of Ephesians chapter number 1 that the Holy Spirit is the earnest of our redemption. Some of you know what earnest money is. Some of you, you know, my generation, we're all too broken or credit shot. We don't get to find out what earnest money is, amen? But some of you remember what earnest money was. You know what that is? That's the down payment. 
That proves that you mean business. It proves there's more in a supply. It proves that the promise that you're making is going to come true. And the Bible says that the Holy Spirit of God is the earnest of our redemption. You know what the Holy Spirit is? The Bible says that we're predestined to be conformed to the image of His dear Son. Uh, that it's God that worketh in us both to will and to do of His good pleasure. We are His workmanship. Uh, let me tell you what's going to happen. The Bible says, Beloved, now we the sons of God, and it does not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when He shall appear, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. The purpose of the plan, of the redemptive plan of God in our life is to make us more Christ-like through the transforming power of the Holy Spirit as He indwells us and we yield unto Him. You see, the purpose is that we would be like Christ and the Holy Spirit, if we yield to Him, is making us more like Christ. He's the earnest of our redemption. Let me tell you when we got that. The Bible says in John chapter number 20 in the upper room that He breathed on them and they received the Holy Spirit. The Bible says in Acts chapter number 2 that as Peter preached that the Holy Spirit came down and the sound of a mighty rushing wind and cloven tongues above uh, those that were uh, around Him. Uh, the Lord, when He resurrected, He had paid the price for our redemption. And He brought us the Holy Spirit and gave gifts to all men. I'll give you one final thing. I'm going to hush. You've stuck with me very well. I want to say in Ephesians 2.6, the Bible says, I'll tell you what, I'll read 4 through 6 because we just read 4 a moment ago. But God, who is rich in mercy for His great love wherewith He loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ. By grace are ye saved. Now listen, and hath raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Because of the resurrection, we're saved from hell and we're spiritually indwelt. But I'd like to say because of the resurrection, we're seated in heavenly places. We talk about how good it's going to be one day. And I, I know what we mean by that. And it is going to be good. We talk about the privilege we're going to have in Jesus Christ. But can I tell you, the Bible says ye are dead and your life is hid with Christ in God. Set your affection on things above, uh, not on things on the earth. The Bible teaches us that what we're going to be in Jesus Christ, practically, we already are positionally in Him. Every doctrine concerning the salvation of the believer has two aspects, the positional and the practical. You say, preacher, give me an example, sanctification. The Bible says, but now are ye sanctified. Sanctified, that means cleansed, set apart. And the Bible says that I am sanctified right now. That's positionally. Because anybody that knows this preacher knows practically. <laughs> practically, there's times I don't act quite so sanctified. I do things wrong. I sin. I fail. I mess up. I fail God in sins of commission and omission. I, I, I fail God on a regular basis. See, positionally, the way that God sees me in Jesus Christ, I'm sanctified. Practically, I need the grace of God in my life on a daily basis. But now listen to me. There's going to come a day when we shall see Him, we shall be like Him. The positional and the practical are going to meet. The, the sinful flesh will be eradicated. Only, listen, not, not in my lifetime, but in my death time. Amen? In the rapture or in my death. So let me tell you now, everything that you are in Jesus Christ, positionally, you are right now. Because of Jesus Christ, you're justified. You say, what's justification? We like to say justified means just as if I'd never sinned. I know it sounds good, and, and I understand what it means, but justified is more than just as if I'd never sinned. Adam was not justified or justified. You know what justified means? It means that we're complete and whole in Jesus Christ.
It means we have a fellowship with God based upon the relationship of His dear Son. It means that we are what we need to be in Him. It means when He looks at us, He sees the blood. We're not only justified, we're redeemed. Redeemed. What does redeemed mean? Well, you know what redeemed means. If a radio station called you and said you'd want something, you'd sure know what redeemed means. Amen? It means the price has been paid for you and I. I'm so thankful that because of Jesus Christ... The price was paid for my sin. And I've been redeemed. I've been adopted into the family of God. I've been sanctified and washed in His blood. And on and on we could go. But suffice it to say this, no matter what this world throws at you and me, we're seated together with Him in heavenly places. No matter what this world does, we're seated together with Him in heavenly places. And let me tell you when that happened. When He hath quickened us together and raised us up with Him. Don't go around with your head hung low. Listen, I'm not a motivational speaker. I mean, me me and Dr. Phil, we'd come to blows. Amen. We just would. I'm not a motivational speaker. But, But I do believe this. I believe that Christians ought to be the most rejoicing people in the entire world. We have an inheritance, incorruptible, which fadeth not away. You say, how'd we get an inheritance? Somebody had to die for us to get an inheritance. You don't get an inheritance unless somebody dies, right? Right? Somebody had to die on our behalf. But because of his death, we have an inheritance incorruptible, which fadeth not away.